Uh, one of the coolest places I, I've ever been in my life was uh, the city of Hong Kong. If you've ever been there before, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I mean. It, it's, it's remarkable. It's in a remarkable place. It's, uh, the trains run through all the malls. <laughs> you can stop. And the best Italian food I ever had was in Hong Kong. Um, trains run exactly on time, all, all the time. Uh, every, everything is, I mean, I, one of the things I noticed when I was in Hong Kong is for, to, as a, from a North American's perspective, everything smells like shrimp. Uh, some, some of that's good. Sometimes it's not, it's not as good. Uh, I, I loved it. I got stuck in an elevator once in Hong Kong for half an hour. I remember that very well. One of the experiences I had in Hong Kong that really threw me off, you know, like I'm not, I, it was the first time I'd ever been to that part of the world, Southeast Asia. And uh, Southeast Asian cultures and North American cultures are different in several ways, but one of the key ways is our, our, our proximity, right? Like uh, in North America, if you're standing, you know, three or four feet from me, I think we're close. And you ever talk to somebody like that, and they're three or four feet from you, and they keep moving away, and you're like, where are you going? You know, you kind of follow, and then you have the close talkers here, and we're like, whoa, slow, slow down. Why? I can smell your breath. Go back. Well, in, in Southeast Asia, uh, culturally, and probably because this is the populace, you know, uh, you're used to being right next to each other, and I, I was not accustomed to that at all. So I remember standing in line to get a ticket to get on the, on the train, and I was standing there, and I was about two feet behind the person in front of me, and this lady comes along, and she steps right in front of me. And I'm like, what? What are you doing? Like, I wouldn't be able to do something. I wouldn't be able to stop her if I wanted to because I was like, I'm like, what am I going to say? I don't know, Cantonese or Mandarin. I have no idea. But I was a little bit bothered. But now, of course, I'm cl- too close to her, so I, I backed up a step, right? And as I backed up a step, this guy jumped right in front of me. And then I backed up a step again, and another guy jumps in front of me. And I'm like, these people. You know, I can't believe that this is, they're so, so rude. Finally, the guy who was with me, Tim, I said, I don't know what's going on, man, because I've been standing in line here for the last 15 minutes, and everyone keeps getting in front of me, and I'm getting angry about it, right? The last person who did it, I tapped on the shoulder, and I looked at them, right? And they were like, why are you tapping me on the shoulder? And he said, oh, it's, you're not, they don't think you're in line. How can they not think I'm in line? I'm right this distance. Oh, because... That's not the distance. You have to stand super close, to, super close to them. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay, so uh, the next time I was actually waiting for an elevator. There's a whole bunch of people waiting for an elevator and, of course, doing this space thing. And then I learned at that point that, that I missed one elevator because everyone else went in front of me. And I, was, and I realized, oh, that's right. They have to get close. So one of the more awkward moments of my entire time was me standing around a bunch of little Chinese women right next to all of them. Like I was a good foot and a half taller than all of them. And I was looking around and they were all right next to me in the front and we all went together into the thing. But I made it to the top of that building, right? Gotta acclimate. You gotta acclimate to succeed. And you know, every kingdom has its own rules. Every, every place you go has its own rules. Every church has its own rules. Sometimes you go to a new church and you're like, I don't understand. Why are you standing up? Wait a minute. I'm sitting down and you want me to stand up and down and up and down. Ah! 
Every place that you go has its own rules. That's not usually why we don't go to new places. It's because we like, we like the rules that we know. We don't look like an idiot all the time. But every place, every, every country, every culture, every subculture has got its own unstated, unstated rules. And if you want to succeed in switching from one culture to another, you have to learn to acclimate to the new rules. Now, that's an image that I, I, I want to keep in your mind because the way that the book of Romans works, this is really what Paul's working with, is this image of, of kingdoms, this image of, of the, the world that used to be, the age that you used to, 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 to be a part of, the, the kingdom of this world that you used to listen to, and now the kingdom of God's dear son that you are now part of, Christian. You have, you have transferred kingdoms from the old to the new. And in the new, there are, there are new rules. And you need to acclimate to the new rules if you want to succeed in God's kingdom. So you find this at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 2. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, you see? Don't, don't conform to the pattern of, of this, this present age, but be transformed. To what? Well, you'll see, by the renewing of your mind... And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, what his rules are, what his desires are in his kingdom, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, so you need a mind renewal so that you can acclimate yourself properly to living in God's kingdom for your good and his glory. Yep. So in Romans 12, the rest of it, that's basically what it's about. In response to the grace of God, remember last week if you were here, in view of God's mercy, in response to the grace that he's shown us, apart from anything that we, we've done, he freely offers us in Christ. In response to all of that wonderful stuff, don't be conformed, but be transformed, specifically in how you love. There's an old way of viewing love, and there's a new way, God's way of viewing love. That's what we have here in Romans 12, verses 9 to 11, are marks, characteristics of kingdom-minded love. Does that make sense? I've got four of them. One, kingdom-minded love is sincere. Two, it's familial. I know it sounds weird. Don't worry about it. Number three, it's humble. And number four, it's persistent. Sincere, familial, humble, and persistent. I'll show you what I mean. Love is sincere. Verse 9. He says that. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. That word sincere is a word that means uh, genuine. You'll, in other translations, you'll find that. G love must be genuine, or love must be without hypocrisy. Uh, I had a friend one time who had a, he had a $100 U.S. bill, and we went to pay for something at a gas station, and when you paid for something at a gas station with a $100 bill, they had this little test. They had this little thing in the back that they ran the $100 bill under, and, and it would test to see if that $100 bill had all the, all the marks of a true $100 bill. Unbeknownst to him, this was fake one. So somebody had passed along a fake one, or maybe not. Maybe it was his fake but it was a fake $100 bill, and they pulled it out and said, no, I'm sorry, we can't take this. It's fake currency. And the guy was like, what? How do you know that? And so the guy went and recounted all the marks, all the marks of what makes a real $100 bill real. 
got a line through it and a thread and see the picture of, you know, I can't even remember, Franklin? I don't even know who's on that. I don't use those bills, right? <laughs> but there's different marks to it that show that it's genuine. And if those marks aren't there, then it's disingenuous. It's insincere, right? So there's a kind, what Paul's saying here is there's a kind of love that looks like the real thing, but is actually disingenuous. Sometimes we use the word love, says Paul, but the love we're talking about is not the kingdom love, it's the love of the former age that's passing away. It doesn't have the right marks. So what are those marks? That's the question. What are the marks of genuine love? Well, he answers that here. Did you see it? He says, love must be sincere. And then he follows it up. Well, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good, those, those words there, evil are, are hate and cling. Those verbs in the original language are stronger verbs than normal. So the, the Greeks had lots of different ways to say hate. And some of it was like, yeah, I just don't like it. And sometimes it was like, I hate it. In the same way that I say, I hate broccoli. I hate the look of it. I hate the smell of it. I hate it when you eat it. In fact, I might hate you for eating it. I hate every part of broccoli. It's visceral for me. That's what Paul means here. Have that kind of, yeah, there's a lot of amens to that one, right? (laughs) Hate what is evil. Like I have a hatred for broccoli. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. It's not just a, yeah, yeah, I like what's good. It's cling to it. It's a word that's used throughout the New Testament to talk about how, how dust clings to your shoes, how a disease clings to your body. When I hear that word cling, I always think about uh, friends when, when I was in college who started dating. You, you, might, you might have had this experience if you're too young. You will have this experience. You, you have a group of, in my case, friends of guys. You know, like you're, we're, the, we're, we're the squad, and we get like, eight guys, and we go play basketball all the time, and we hang out and eat pizza every Tuesday night. We do the stuff. And then one of the guys goes and meets a girl, right? And then she joins us and makes it awkward, right? And then, then, but then the rest of the guys are like, oh, it's fine to have her along. But whenever she's along, they're kind of next to each other all the time. And, and everywhere he goes, she goes. And and everywhere she goes, he goes. He's not coming to the things that we do. He doesn't watch the games with us anymore. And finally, one of the guys say, it says, when we're, all the guys are back together and the girl's not there, we say to our friend, dude, why are you so clingy? Right? And what do we mean by that? You're always together. Always stuck with each other. Love is stuck together with what's good. It clings to what's good. It abhors, that's one of the ways that they translate this, it abhors evil and it clings to the good. So here's, what, here's Paul's point, okay? You put all this together. Here's his point. He's, he's saying that genuine love is when we are strongly committed to avoiding evil and doing good in our actions toward others as defined by God and his word. I'm gonna say that again. Genuine love, as opposed to disingenuous love is when we are strongly committed to avoiding evil 
and doing good in our actions toward others as defined by God and his words. Because Paul is, is thinking here, when I'm thinking good and evil, I'm thinking God gets to define what those are. And we know those things by God and his word. So true love desperately wants the person being loved to follow God and his word. So let me give you, let me give you some pictures to what I, what I think this is getting, getting at. Um, so a mother walks into a room and she sees her, her little boy and uh, her little boy has pulled all the scissors in the house out and, and many knives in the house. And he has made up a game. And the game involves throwing the knife into the air and letting it, letting it fall as he lays underneath it. Look, Mom, I made a game. And she says... Stop right now. Don't you touch those knives or scissors or anything. Stop right now. Stop. And he starts to cry. You know, he's four years old. He created this lovely game, right? He'd never seen it done before. He's thinking maybe ESPN will carry this someday, right? And he says to her at one point in his tears, Don't you love me? Now, what is, it, what is he saying? He's saying that, Mom, love is defined, he's probably not thinking this clearly, but lo love is defined by my happiness in the immediate moment, right? If you love me, you will empower me to feel happy now. But Mom is thinking to herself, of course I love you, and that's why I'm making you stop. And she's thinking, the reason I'm making you stop is because I have a different definition of love. The love I have for you seeks your good and wants to abstain from any kind of evil for you. One of those loves is sincere, genuine, and the other one is insincere and disingenuous. You're using the word love, but it's not love. Okay, so then let's apply that to real things now. Now that I got you all nodding with the first one. Um... So a couple starts dating. It's the couple, maybe the friend, you know, that was part of your squad. He's dating the girl now, and they start dating. You're all Christians together. She's college. They're dating each other. The reason they're kind of clingy is because they're kind of actually clingy. You know, they're physically stuck together in many different public places. And you can imagine that this couple at some point is sitting in the car together, staring out at the, the beauty of Mill Lake. And, and stars in the sky, twinkle in her eyes. All of the, the, the darkness has removed her physical imperfections. She's, the, she's gorgeous. They're all pretty in the dark. All right? Sorry. I'm going to get an email for that one. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm kidding. Please, please. I'm totally kidding. I just said it to get a rise out of you. All right. So they're sitting there in this car and they're looking off into the distance and they're just 
lovey-dovey, looking in each other's eyes. And of course, the kissing starts and the patting of the head and the hands start going places. And one of them says, wait, wait, stop. We shouldn't do this. And the other one says, but don't you love me? Now, how is that person using the word love? What they're saying is, don't you love me in the sense that don't you want for me to make me happy in this present moment? Isn't that what love essentially is? If you really loved me, you would give me what I want to make me happy now. But is that genuine love? No, according to this passage, it's disingenuous. Sincere, genuine love is seeking the good of the other person as defined by Scripture. Clinging to that good and abhorring, hating the evil, doing whatever you can to avoid it. So the person who's saying stop says, yes, I love you. And that's why I want to stop. Because I want to lead you in the way of God and his word. Give you one more. A Christian friend. You've been friends for years and years. Uh, they've gotten married, maybe. You find out that uh, they have had uh, an extramarital relationship. And it, I don't, it might be, your friend might be a, a man, and the, that man has had an extramarital relationship with another woman or another man or whatever, and they've embraced this. Right? They've, they've embraced both their heterosexual sexual sin or their homosexual sexual sin, and, and they are, they're, they're given over to it. Or maybe they're not married and they just want to cohabit together and they're like, no, we're Christian people, we're going to do this thing, it's great. You don't talk to them for a while, they're over your, one of them's over at your house one time and they finally come up to you in the kitchen while you're making stuff and they say, so we haven't talked since I've you know, cohabitated or left my husband or wife or whatever and done this thing that's made me happy. What do you think about it? Because I think I know what you think about it and I want to challenge you, says your friend. I want to challenge you to love me. Don't you love me? And in that moment, you're, you should be thinking, right, what is kingdom love? Because you're appealing to love as being, hey, can you affirm what I'm doing right now that makes me happy? But kingdom love is not that. See, that's disingenuous love. Genuine love is the kind of love that says, no, I do, I do love you. And that's why I want to oppose you and call you to repent and plead with you. You see the difference? Christian people love sincerely hating what is evil, clinging to what is good. So, one, love is sincere. Second, love is familial. I'll show you what I mean. You get this line. This is the next line at the beginning of verse 10. It says, be devoted to one another in love. That's in the New International Version. That's the version we're using here. They don't, they don't do really well in giving you the guts of what Paul's writing here, um, because that word, be devoted, is the Greek word philostorgos. Okay, what I want you to hear, though, is the philos at the beginning. Okay, it means, means brotherly. 
Um, love here is the Greek word Philadelphia. Notice the similarity? Philos, phila. Philadelphia means to love like a brother. Philostorgos means devoted like a brother. And so what Paul's really doing here, according to one of the translations, the Holman Christian Standard Bible does it this way, and this is, the, this is a better translation. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love, because both of those words have a family word in them. Brother. Be devoted like a brother. Love in that way with brotherly love. You hear it? Brotherly, brotherly. So Paul wants Christians to love one another like they love their families. That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to evoke in your minds, okay, I want you to picture your family. That's the way you should be loving other people in the church. You know why he says that? Because we are family. So just to prove that to you, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and brother are standing outside wanting to speak with you. And we expect Jesus here, to be, as being a good son, to be like, oh, okay, can everybody just hold on a minute, just push pause on the talk, I'm just going to go out and talk to my mom, see if she brought the cupcakes, you know. He replied to him, though, the messenger, Jesus replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Jesus has done there is basically redefined his family. My family is not necessarily my biological family, says Jesus. My family is my spiritual family, those who follow. We're brothers and sisters. And the love that characterizes a biological brother and sister or mother and son should be the love that characterizes the spiritual family. You get a similar language in Luke 18, verse 28. This is when the rich ruler had come, and he uh, it was really sad because Jesus said, you need to go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And he walks away, and he's, and he's really sad. And Jesus says it's harder for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Peter's like, well, and his buddy's like, who can be saved then? And Jesus said, well, with, with God, it's possible. Human beings, that's impossible. With God, it's possible. And then Peter said to him, verse 28, we, we've, we left all we had to follow you. Well, truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or, listen now, wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much, what? Oh, brothers and sisters and mothers and Many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. So in other words, yeah, you, you guys gave up your familial ties. That's okay because you're joining a bigger family. What is he talking about? The church. The spiritual family of God. So the point here is we are family and family loves each other differently. We, lo we love each other with greater devotion. So just think about your own family. My mother was alive. One of my great favorite things that I ever did was when I would drive to her house when I was in college or even when I got married, uh, we'd drive to the front, front of our house and I, no, I didn't knock. I just burst into the house you know, walk down, mom, right? I'm 26 years old, 28 years old at this time. First place you go, right, gentlemen, refrigerator. 
see what she's got. And she always had something, right? I knew you were coming, right? And so you open it up and there's the cheese ball. I just grab the whole cheese ball and I sit down with that baby on the couch, put my leg up. My dad's watching a show. I grab the clicker and I just start changing that channel, right? <laughs> I do that because we're, fam we're family. Can you imagine if I did that in your house, right? Just came to your house, What's it, John? You know, and just opened the door and started taking all your coke and sitting down. You know, this show stinks. We're, you know, and I'll, you would probably not be pleased. And the reason for that is because you'd be like, hey, stop acting like you're my family. Yeah, because we understand that the family has a special kind of devotion for each other. We have a special kind of hospitality that we show one another. My son was really little. We were playing cricket in New Zealand and the ball. The ball came off one of the bats, and it hit him dead in the head. You ever wondered what's wrong with my son, Micah? There it is. <laughs> a hit in the head with a cricket ball. Well, cricket balls are really hard and wooden, and hit him flat in the head. Every, everybody there was like, oh, my goodness, and froze. But as his father, my wife was carrying him while it happened. She's smiling and talking to someone, right off his head. And all of a sudden, he's crying, what's wrong? And I'm like, oh, he hit him dead. And so I run in, and taking care of Micah, and we put him in the car. Is he still awake? Is he still awake? Drive to the hospital, he's still awake. Hey, he's looking all over the place. He's fine, kind of like, oh, my head hurts. We get to the hospital, we show all of this care for him. We're, we're staying there. My wife, I'm not leaving until he's fine. And then she's in the room with him. And none of the other people were there with us because they're not family. Family shows a special kind of devotion to each other. If, you're, if your child is... In that situation, I expect that you would show more care and devotion to them than I would. Family is devoted to one another in that kind of love. I always tell my kids, my two, my two boys, you know, sometimes they get in a bit of a fit with each other and they get mad and I, I pull them aside frequently and say, hey, listen, you guys better work this out because you're stuck together the rest of your life, right? You're family. So you're always going to be bucking it might be a long way away, but you're stuck together. So let's just work it out. Just work it out. It'll be a lot harder later to work it out. Let's just work it out now. My, my, my point here is that if Christians are truly family, we should have family-level devotion for each other. We, we work things out because we're linked forever. Not just to the end of the li this life, forever. You're like, oh, I wanna, I, you, know, you see that person you don't like in Costco? You're like, I'm going to go to the other wall. Wait till you're in heaven. There's no Costco's there. Well, maybe Kevin is all Costco. I don't, right? <laughs> it's it's going to be hard to avoid them. Our pain, each other's pain is our business. When you hurt, I hurt. Or at least that's the way it, it should be, and we're hospitable to everyone, but especially to each other. As Paul says, Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the, to the, the family of believers. Yeah, you should be, there should be a devotion, a familial kind of love. Third, Love is sincere, love is familial. Third, love is humble. Second part of verse 10, he, he says, honor one another above yourselves. 
So this, this is a command that's like a shorthand of what Paul says in a longer version elsewhere. If you go to Philippians chapter two, verse three, here's what, what you read. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, or okay, he's equal to God on Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or in other versions, to be held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So that's a big distance to go from eternal joy and peace in the Trinity to becoming a human being. It's a big gap. He didn't stick with the first, but instead humbled himself and being found, verse eight, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in other words, the incarnation of Jesus, meaning his born into this world, going from, you know, equality with God in, in, that, in that perfect union, experientially, to coming to the earth, and then not just living here in a palace, but instead going to the cross and dying at the hands of sinful men, all reeks of humility, and putting others in front of yourself. What Paul's saying is, see, that's our Lord, that's what should mark us, that honoring others above ourselves. You know why this is hard? I have a theory. It's a theory, actually, that I came across a number of years ago in a book by a guy named Donald Miller. It's called The Lifeboat Theory. I shared it a number of years ago. Here, here's how it goes. His theory was that basically the reason that you and I don't like to honor each other above ourselves, we not want to honor you above me, is because all of us think that there is this big lifeboat. The ship is sinking, right? The world and there's a lifeboat. And we have to give reasons for why we belong in the lifeboat. And some of us, our reasons for belonging in the lifeboat are, well, I've got big muscles. Or I'm really educated. Or I'm really good at baseball. Or have you seen how pretty I am? Have you seen how well I can throw a ball through this hoop? I'm fast. Everybody's got a thing that they point to to say, I belong in the lifeboat. Whenever you get in a debate with somebody else and you get really mad because they, they're better at something than you, the thing that you usually point to to say, well, you might be good at that, but I'm good at, that's usually your reason. So we all think that we belong in the lifeboat because of that particular thing. And so a pretty girl is in the school, in the high school, and, and, and the beginning of the year starts, and there's another girl. She's always been known as the prettiest girl in her class, and all of a sudden, some girl who moved from Calgary shows up, and she's pretty, pretty. And everyone starts focusing attention on that, and the girl's tries, you know, out in front of everyone's like, oh, yeah, she's sweet and kind, but behind the scenes, she's saying, I don't like her at all. Have you seen her nose? It's way too big. Well, what's she doing? Well, her, her place in the lifeboat's threatened. You can't take her. Take me. She ends up going, of course, and trying to get skinnier and skinnier by eating less and less food because she's got to stay in the lifeboat. 
Or your kid is on a sports team and there's another kid on the team who's really good, but your kid's kind of good and that other kid seems to be getting attention. And you kind of cheer like this, yay, good job, Jimmy. But behind the scenes, you're like, ooh, that Jimmy. I don't like him. Right, do you see he struck out four times? Do you see that he missed those shots? Do you see that he can't skate? He can't skate like my kid. What's going on there? Well, you want to be in the lifeboat. You, got, you, that, you have to be better. Your kid has to be better. So you start talking trash about the other person, and then you put them down. You dishonor them because you got to stay in, stay in the lifeboat. I've been around pastors enough to know that they're all real polite in public. Oh, nice to see you. What church do you work at? Oh, I love that church. It's fantastic. But then you get in their little groups behind it. That church over there stinks. I don't like them at all. Their building is ugly, and they replace the stone on the sides with white panel. You know, like... <laughs> Whatever. They're sellouts. Whatever it is, what are they doing? Well, we need to, I need to be in the lifeboat. Our church is better. I'm a better pastor so that when they need a pastor in the lifeboat, they're taking me and not him. So the theory is that all of us are trying to fight for our place in the lifeboat. And the secret is There's no lifeboat. That you're standing as a person, as a Christian, is established by the living God who chose you, made you who you are, and is carrying you to your eternal home. That nothing, nothing is going to change that. Everybody else around you can succeed more than you. And you'll still arrive at that heavenly home. So that knowledge should free you up. It should free you up to say, you know what? That kid's pretty good. She's pretty. That church is great. That guy's good at his job. My friend's kind. You know, there's, there's this great scene in John chapter 13 where Jesus starts washing his disciples' feet, which is weird for the king of heaven to be doing, yes? But here's why he does it. <laughs> John 13, 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So all things are under my power, I've come from God, I'm returning to God. I know who I am, says Jesus. None of that's gonna be changed. So what does he do? Verse four, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He started doing slaves' work. How does the king of heaven do slaves' work? Because he knows who he is. Do you know who you are? Maybe the reason that you're so irritated by all those other people and what they're getting ahead is because you don't know who you are. Love is humble. Sincere, familial, humble, finally persistent. Uh, Last verse, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord 
that word zeal means to be moving towards something swiftly, right? Like, like quickly. Uh, I was just at a baseball tournament this week in Toronto. It was a great week. I flew there to watch my son come back. They had these two little boys catching the balls in the stands. And uh, they were racing each other. So the ball, you know, be fouled off and it would go into the stands of the Rogers Center. And this one, two, these two little boys would be like jumping on each other. And they'd run as fast as they could. Some parents were messing around with them and they'd go and get the ball and run away. It was great. Better than the games. Right? These little two kids. It's not an image though of moving quickly with zeal. I would say that those two little boys had, had zeal. Now, c- contrast that with the way that my children respond when I say, can one of you take out the trash? <laughs> Dad, that's easily as hard as, as cold fusion. I don't think I can, you know, like they don't. So, so what Paul is saying here is never be lacking in zeal. Never be the, hey, we have to take out the trash guy. But instead, be the kids running after the baseballs when it comes to serving the Lord. Have a zealous attitude and approach to serving the Lord. Not, oh, do I have to? But do I get, really? Do I get to? So how do you do that? God, tell you, man, serving the Lord gets tiring. It'd be easy if people were not involved right? But it's tiring. How do you keep your spiritual further? So let, let, me, let me just finish this sermon with three pieces of advice regarding keeping your spiritual fervor. If you feel tired at all, I'm just, I'm going to commend this to you, all right? Number one, remember the grace. Second Corinthians 4, verse 1 and Paul says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. I mean, this is a guy who's getting beaten up all over the place and he died, nearly dies on several occasions, but he says, no, 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 we don't lose heart. Why not? Well, because we got the ministry through God's mercy. Like it was given to us. You know where we should have been is basically what Paul's saying. The day doesn't go by that I don't realize where I should have been. So no matter how bad this gets, no matter how difficult it is, it's still better than that. Remember that movie Castaway? Some of you would remember it. It's kind of a modern classic. Guy gets, Tom Hanks gets stuck on an island. There's a scene after he gets rescued, rescues himself, basically gets, he gets back to the mainland after I think it was four years of being on the island and he's, he's laying in a room an air-conditioned room at a hotel laying on the floor because he can't handle the bed because it's too hard, and he's just flipping the lights on and off. Just on and off. You know, I imagine if you'd been stuck on a desert island for four years, there would not be a moment that goes by, not a day that goes by that you don't think, however bad this is, it's better than the island. So no matter how bad it gets, it's better than than being lost in your sins, guys. It's better than being left alone to fend for yourself in the world. It's better. It's better. Since we, have this, since we have this ministry through God's mercy, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. So remember the grace. Number two, remember the hope. Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's a glorious future on the way. So yes, right now, difficult, but then Majestic, the work you're doing now, hard, but 
then rest and phenomenal future. Yes? There's a, Tim Keller tells us great, he gives this great illustration. You know, imagine the worst possible job you can. Um, I always think it's the guy who has to empty out the porta bu- poo bucket thing. I just think that's just the grossest thing. Worst possible, do you imagine the worst possible job? You know, Ezra's personal assistant. That would be... <laughs> so worst possible job, I want you to imagine that, okay? So I come along to you, though, and I say, listen, you got this horrible job. But at the end of the year, I'm going to give you a billion dollars for doing this job. Now, the day before I told you that, you would have gone to the job, oh, I got to go see Ezra again, you know? Oh, I got to go empty human feces out of that hole, you know? But then the day after I told you about the billion dollars, you'd be like, get that suction thing over here. We're going to have a good time, you know? I love you, Ezra. You'd be, it'd be a joy to do all of this wonderful work. Why? Because of the future hope. You think you're in the dregs? You might be. Serving the Lord, you might be in the dregs. Man, you got to remember the hope. you got to remember the hope. Remember the grace and the hope. And then finally, remember the help. Joshua 1.9, about to go into the promised land, take it. Right? They already made their mistake by failing to do it, but they're going to new start. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, Joshua says to the Lord. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear an evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Matthew 18, 28 or 18 to 20. Great commission. Jesus, before he ascends, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You ever come across a group of guys, you know, who are walking down the street, and there's like six of them, and we're walking, yeah, tough, right? And then... Like five hours later, you see one of those guys and he's sitting in the corner of the subway, you know, huddled over his, his, his cup of drink, worried that someone might attack him. What happened? Why was this guy? <laughs> Why did he go from that to this cowering person? And the answer is he had friends. Friends bring, bring out boldness. Now, can, can you imagine what kind of boldness having the Holy Spirit in you ought to bring. You are never alone. He is always there to help. And he will achieve his purposes in his good time. So never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Don't you love Romans? Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and for this book. Each one of these phrases uh, is worth pondering. So there's a lot to ponder here. So I pray by the power of your spirit, you would help us to recall whatever little bits and pieces needed to be said here, that you will bring those things back to mind this week as we continue to serve you. Father, I want to specifically uh, pray this moment um, for um, those in our community, Father, who are, seem to be taking their own lives. And I want to pray especially for um, some 
friends of our church and involved with MEI and Abby Senior and who have, uh, who have done that this week. Father, I pray that you would comfort our community and I pray that you would care for us. Help us to be agents of reconciliation and blessing in our community these days. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.